Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we have our quarterly book club meeting uh, in which we select a uh, business book and then we discuss it uh, for the session. Uh, This time we picked Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, which is about negotiation. Uh, A fascinating book and something near and dear to all of our hearts because we are all entrepreneurial in some way and have to deal with selling, which you will hear us talking about quite a bit. Uh, The book is fantastic. Uh, A high recommend for me personally. Um, And I think we had a very vibrant discussion about it, uh, which I especially enjoy. Uh, And then we are going to go in the last quarter in the fall, we'll actually talk about a related book that we brought up, which is the two butt rule. And uh, that was also mentioned in this book. Great conversation. If you haven't read the book yet, um, you will get a lot out of the conversation anyway, and possibly motivation to buy it if you don't own it. I know you'll enjoy the conversation. I'll tell you from many other vendors that I've talked to in the last probably two or three weeks, whether they're, you know, um, OEM technology plays or ISVs, I guess. Um, One of the things that all the sales guys that I've talked to or all the managers of sales teams and whatever, not only is the cycle longer and, you know, it takes more to get to yes, but for whatever reason, uh, product-led growth is not working for them anymore, which I find is very ironic. And the reason that it's not is because we're at this inflection point in transformation where we're entering the second wave. And the second wave is not driven by technology. It is definitely, and call it my glory and validation, that this has always been a value play, right? Mm -hmm. What is the business benefit you can get to me today and strategically longer term? I can't invest any more in stuff that will solve a problem without it solving five problems. And that's also to the point that I made earlier about lean. So you have to shift your marketing just a little bit to be a higher level value proposition because the product led is the how you do it. It's not the why or the what's in it for me or the what's in it for the organization. It's you have to up the game to the strategic level, which is a conversation you and I had about a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. I tend to be foresighted. Yeah. So and, and we've we've been know. making adjustments along those lines. It's it's not that you can't you don't also have to do product led because right. the product has to work. But you you have to you have to be bringing outcomes into every conversation from that perspective. Exactly. I've definitely I've definitely seen it. And and actually I think this is an interesting transition point to talk about the book. Um sure. so because I think I think this idea so, of Rob, take, how are you guys doing that? Do I need to like if if I'm missing should I go to the Google Docs or Yes, the Google Docs has the has the calendar in it. Okay. All right. I'm sorry that's, for interrupting. That's fine. Uh, so it's always that that and then it, it all links to the books and things like that. So the, the book is Chris Foss's Never Split the Difference. Um, 
And uh, actually, I'll 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 share some of Diana's feedback because I thought it was interesting. So it's it's he uses a ton of hostage negotiation strategies where splitting the difference would is literally you know choosing people um, uh, to explain you know sort of negotiation process. And and her comment was you know she she found it interesting. She read it twice and, and liked it. Um, she will, she will say is that, uh, hold on, I'm going to actually read her quote because I think it's fascinating. Um, not one thing I learned in the book has ever helped me win a sale. Um, and that's ironic because tactical empathy, which is the thing, you know, the key, one of the key takeaways, and I made some notes of there's like eight key takeaways, Mm -hmm. um, Tactical empathy, I think, would help you close a sale really, really well because you're validating the person's feelings. And we all know that decisions are made subconsciously by emotion long before they're conscious and logical. I I agree with you. I, I, I found this book very helpful from a sales perspective. And in part because, like, I have Sandler training, which is you know, things like, you know, take not being upset when you get a no, understanding that you often have to get a no before you can get to a yes anyway, and that you learn a lot from a no. All, all of those are core lessons out of this book. And now you're doing the active listening and moderate mirroring. <laughs> mirroring is the okay. other, mirroring is a big, is a big, big, big takeaway. And just like helping repeating what somebody said to the, back to them is so powerful. Silly. But... It is. But, you know, you have to be careful with it. <laughs> because if you do it all the time as you're having the conversation, you sound like a parrot and you're perceived as being less than credible. Because right. all you're doing is regurgitating their words with your own twist. So you're saying that you sound like an LLM? <laughs> uh, and sometimes one that's hallucinating, Yes. Yeah, uh, the same thing as as um, I think also my number three takeaway from the book was labeling emotions. You hmm. can't really get away with that. You can diffuse tension with humor. Me, it's with chocolate, as you know. Um, but that notion of labeling emotions, e- I don't want to think for you, and I don't. I think it's pejorative. Oh, I I, I have I have used this technique um, since reading the book a lot, and I I found it incredibly powerful. Um, when when you say it seems like you are because it's it's you're not you're you're not telling them you are upset, which I do find inflammatory. If you say seems to me like you're upset. You're 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 describing your your observation about their feeling, and right. that can then they'll then either yes, and then you've moved forward, or they'll say no, I'm this, and they've moved. You've managed to discuss move move the conversation into an emotional um, place. Um, right. The standard parenting well, technique too. Yeah. Like with, with, when you're dealing with yes. upset kids, you label their emotions to get them to get out of the the cycle of like they're upset because of a and and then a is making them upset and yeah hey everybody this is john hey john 
You know, I, I I'm, yeah. I've like dived in. I tried to get here on time, but um, but you know, when when we were doing all that burnout research, we had we had brought, and I, I'm not even sure what book you're talking about. But I love this idea of sort of labeling emotions. But um, I remember we we it was in Vegas at an event, and we brought in um, uh, a suicide um, hotline uh, person. And you know, one of the things she said that there's a misnomer about. Um, that you think if somebody's going through trouble, if you mention the word suicide, they might commit suicide. And he mm. says, actually, just the opposite. He said that, like, what they found is if you actually say, are you commit, you thinking about suicide, it opens up the, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, so be very, I'm, like, not giving advice. I'm just getting what I heard. But he said that it gets like, oh, you understand my feelings. And, and it was really enlightening to me because, um, you know, because I wrote that article a few years ago and people have sort of, in some cases, come to me as sort of a lightning rod for whatever. Mm. You know, I, I've often thought about that and, and you know, where before that conversation, I would have you know, never, if somebody would call and they'd say, John, you know, they'd be in tears and, and you know, and I would you know, like try to skirt around what I was really thinking. Anyway. So I think that labeling idea is like, it's an empathy thing, right? It is. Like, I, I think if, if if you haven't read the book, which is Never the Split the Difference it? by Chris Voss. Okay. Um, it, it is like 30% of the book is about how, how to do exactly what you just described very succinctly. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Build, build empathy awesome. as part, like, because a lot of times we're very focused on, I need to sell, I need to negotiate. And what people do is they miss the whole conversation about what, how, how are you going to, what's better for you? What are you doing? You know, how does this improve what you're doing? What problems are you facing? Um, and that, that empathy is actually a core part of success in sales. I, you know, I tend to hard conversation, but I'll shut up after this. Have you ever read the book, How to Teach a Kid to Ride a Bicycle, or You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bicycle at a Seminar? It's by the Sandler Institute, and and it is the best book on selling because it's okay. basically that same kind of concept of that you don't sort of like brute force them. You literally draw them into a, hey, um, you know, we've got this. I think you have a problem. I think we have a solution. If you're hearing me right, your problem is like this. If I if I'm wrong, then you know, sorry, I wasted your time. And you literally draw them as, as opposed to I'm trying to cheat you out of money, you know, more of a like, hey, you know, if you really do have this problem, I think we understand it, and I might have people that can, you know, it's it it's one of the best, you know, sort of life books I've read. To be honest with you, so I'm gonna order this. This is I love Sand. So I I took Sandler, and it was one of the most impactful oh, you, things you, I, the, I did. It's incredible. Um, that whole body of work is off the chart. Yeah. So, um, yeah. This, and this also puts into light why a lot of people find, or and, and, and rightfully so, find cold calls or, or just like direct emails so off putting. <laughs> is that, I mean, sometimes they, they, they try to build empathy, but they're completely off, the, off it. Like they, they're just making a guess. And and then they're not listening to you, just direct sale. So one of my biggest learnings from that book, and a friend of mine who was the greatest salesman I've ever known, the first thing he taught me about selling, which was when you call somebody, the first thing you say to them is now a good time. And that is so powerful. 
Um, and it's powerful in multiple ways because more often than not, if they don't know you, they'll say no. But you're like, okay, is there another time? And then they give you another time, you call them and you say, is now a good time? And they say no. And by the third, and this is really a gamification from selling, by the third or fourth time, they feel guilty and they literally take your call. But in general, the idea that you would just call somebody at blue and assume that they're going to drop everything to talk to you is so arrogant. And, you know, again, that comes from Sandler Institute mentality as well. So. Well, I, I think the, you know, maybe I didn't express it well, but I think the thing that I found about the way he described labeling emotions of, it seems like your feeling to me comes across as very pejorative and somewhat rude. Maybe that's just because of my background. I tend to say to people, you know, other people that I've had this conversation with have been and described their emotions or how they feel about something. And it tends to be less in your face, more nuanced and more subtle. And then they go, you know what? I would agree with that. And then you're putting it on a third party because you're not, and you're not taking the impact directly if you're wrong. Um, and it also gives them an opportunity to voice their own opinion in their own words without you kind of like pulling it out of them saying, I think you might be feeling like this. Um, I actually had somebody say to me not long ago, um, I like the fact that you didn't make an assumption. And I think we're living in a time where people are very um, sensitive about you making assumptions for them. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, their fear, their FOMO about AI. You know, think with me, don't think for me. And when you do it in voice as a human being, they're even more, you know, standoffish about that. It could be just the people that I'm speaking to, but so I tend to rather throw it on the third invisible party and <laughs> get the reaction that I want to get from there. But the um he does a good job of telling you uh, of saying do it but he doesn't do a good job of telling you other ways to get the person to say what they're feeling and this is where the study of rhetoric actually comes in very handy because yeah. um uh, I'm, 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 i should know that I, I, I studied this um so there are Essentially, rhetorical figures are can be classified by the appeal to either uh, recent emotion or or character or, or morality. So these are logos, pathos, and ethos. And it, it's been well known in rhetorical circles, like this goes back all the way to to Plato, that appeal to emotion has the strongest effect when trying to convince someone. Absolutely. So one of the things I found really fascinating in this book and that I loved, it sadly was not until near the end, was this idea of when somebody says that's right, like this this trigger of being in a in a situation where you've heard them enough, you've mirrored back what they said, and they say that's right. Like I have observed since doing this book, oh, when I do it. And I'll say in a sales situation, and when 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 the person I'm talking to, because sales isn't just like getting somebody to buy; it's discussing something with your own team, 
right? A lot of a lot of these these things are much more about you know, hey, I'm I'm working with my kids, my spouse, somebody, and you know, getting the empathy to hear what they're saying. And it is universal that somebody, when you've been able to explain their point of view, will say that's right back to you. Um, and it's it's it it is it's everything he described. It's like this, you know, you literally change the path of a discussion when you've listened enough to say something and have the person come back and say, that's right to you. Well, you know, Andrew Clay Schaefer, right? Like he's a dear, dear friend of mine. And, and for years he annoyed the heck out of me because he never agrees with you, even when he does agree with you, you know? So, I mean, there, there's a meta point there and he does it to learn. I, when I finally figured out, I, I mean, I love the guy dearly anyway, right? But, but like, he, he was like the annoying brother that, you know, and then one day I realized, you know, he was talking about how he, he took debate in high school and college. And, and I realized Andrew's about learning. And if he agrees with you, and, um, you know, and then the only other thing, the Sandler Institute yeah. is, that, you know, to what you were saying, Rob, one of the things they talked about in the Sandler training, and I think it's in the book too, is that, that you immediately get to that this is a team. This is like if you agree you have a problem, if you think that I might have a problem, you'll that you start like a conversation, like, okay, before our next call, I need you to do these three things, and I'm gonna do these three things. And you're sort of working together as a project, you know, and, and it really sort of changes the whole, you know, the dynamics of that, you know, like we're doing, hey, you know. I'm sorry, I only got two of the, you know, the the customer you're trying to sell to is apologizing to you now on the next call. <laughs> they only well, that's, that, I think I think that that's an important insight in the book. It's really interesting because you're, you know, one of the things he says that's that's helpful is he's like the the people capturing hostages don't uh, actually there's an interesting story in here because the script had been people capturing hostages don't want the hostages, they want something else. And so, so from that perspective, the negotiations were, you know, figuring out something that both people wanted so that you could move things forward. And there's an interesting story that he tells in the middle of when the, the, what people wanted was the media exposure and the chaos of, you know, being in a, in a shooting situation, you know, they, so they, you know, all these things are hostage negotiations or things like that. But he said, you know, gave examples of times when somebody doesn't actually want a shared outcome. Their their outcome is martyrdom. Um, but understanding that also was was useful. Um, uh, and it, it so it's a really fascinating story to you know f- in business finding finding that shared outcome for somebody and get and getting to it. Um, it was a really helpful so, conversation. <laughs> I'm thinking about ways I'm gonna. <laughs> the refresher is always good. The 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 place where this made as an incredible impact on me was when I had to do negotiations, big negotiations in Japan hmm. with with NTT and KDD, and you are immediately struck by the fact that. Uh, many off many times you have to know what is a legitimate or an acceptable expression of agreement or disagreement. And in particular disagreement, the worst possible thing you can do is put the person on the other side of the table 
into a position where he or she has to say no. If you say no, you have lost face. So you come to, so you come to a conclusion where, ah, okay. In those conversations where you're trying to find the, you know, the right jointly held, you know, path forward, you, you might suggest the path forward, but you also offer as an alternative an escape, right? You, you give them, you give the other person the exit, which is a signal. I took the exit. Ah, that was a no. Right. I can't do that. Um, and I mean, the list goes on, but when you start dealing with those kinds, and I mean, Klaus's reference to rhetoric, I mean, I, I, I studied it as well. And so that became a very, very important part of the way I interacted whenever I was doing any kind of business. I had to really super adjust my situation whenever I was doing this in Japan and came to understand exactly not quite to the same extent, but anytime I was dealing with, um, large companies from outside the U S and I had to deal with them, especially on, uh, data communications or some some aspect that was a technical issue or an economic issue i always had to kind of think through and put myself in the other on the other other side of the table and do as much as i could to understand what was proper etiquette i think that's one of the only things i found missing in his book it's a very and I keep saying this to you guys over and over again, and I don't mean to be disrespectful at all. It's a very American-centric point of view. To your mm. point, Rich, I have found that I've worked in six different countries. I have always made it my point to know the cultural norm before you ever enter any kind of a meeting. I don't care whether it's a negotiation or just a, hi, this is who who I am or who we are. If you don't take the time, and but I think in North America, even that, state by state, it differs. And company really by does. company. And that too. Company by company. I mean, yes. you know, I, I, I think a perfect, a, a, a very quick anecdote. When I used to go to the West Coast, particularly if I went to Seattle and then into California, because I was coming from the East Coast and because I was coming from Canada and Toronto being what it is, people didn't understand. So, yeah, I heard every hockey joke. Yes, I heard disparaging comments like, do you people really live in igloos and whatever, 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 you know, all the BS that goes along with that. But consistently, the first three or four trips that I would make to the same customers or the same companies, it was like, you probably want seafood. Do you know what it's like to, to understand that a person cannot eat seafood six days of a week? It's ridiculous. But I, on the other hand, would bring things 
you know, to them to understand that, okay, they're making that assumption because of where I come from food-wise. And a lot of these meetings are dinner or lunch or whatever. But I, I felt that the West Coast mentality of business is absolutely different than the East Coast mentality of, of business. And if you are in middle America or the South, especially the deep South, you have to keep adjusting over and over again. So for all his stories in the book, the point that I'm getting to is I, I, I miss that, not in his context description, where does he bring the cultural aspect into it? Like, does he just mentally do that? But he didn't mention anything about it. And I think that's part of the underpinnings that we all have to learn as we apply the techniques. I don't know if anybody else felt the same way. I I feel like that you're you're entirely right, and there's you know the the empathy and rapport piece is a big is a big component for for what what he was saying. Um, and and one of the, one of the things I think that is interesting is I, I think he mentioned this in the book, but it's it's definitely people get uncomfortable about it, and it's very helpful to acknowledge when you don't know. And ask right to to say you know instead of assuming that you want seafood the whole time to say you know would you know do you have a a, a preference we have you know like like we don't ask enough you know we we and I, I'm guilty of this too we don't ask when we should yeah. um, and, well, but even there even there and and by the way the reason I brought that up was because I found it was missing in the book because I thought the book is really really very good. But that was one yeah. part where I just kind of said, no, not my experience. Um, mm -hmm. When you are asking, sometimes you have to know how to ask or at least how to interpret the answer because yeah. you can't always get a, you know, completely upfront, this is the situation answer. Even if you've established trust, they know what, you know, one another. There are, there are, <laughs> it, and there are rules of, there are rules of the road and you have to know which side to drive on. Sometimes. It, it can, it can be very, I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example from uh, my wife. We were, we were uh, going to a pancake breakfast. We're both gluten free. She's very gluten sensitive, meaning celiac. And, and and was like you know should we bring our own food or will you will you have gluten free options for us? Um, but the the challenge with that question is when they say yes, it, you know then you have a whole bunch of follow up questions about you know contamination, isolation, all this stuff. And so it was a it was an interesting negotiation um, for her to be you know for her to ask the questions and drive down a way that actually got to are you going to it you know are you going to cross contaminate um and the, the end of the story is we're bringing our you know we're we're now in charge of the gluten-free option which was a fine option which is a fine outcome um but there's an you know even in something as simple as is that there's you know somebody saying yes that's the thing i want is not the answer she was looking for her the answer she was looking for is if you're doing gluten-free options are you you know are you worried about celiac or are you just putting you know putting a checkbox on the, on the list 
You're describing my life. My wife is not a celiac, but she's pretty allergic. And my son's friend is a celiac. And, you know, I mean, we've gotten really good now at picking records, but my, me and my wife were in, in India a few years ago. And you want to talk about a battle of oh, yeah. trying to get, like, you, like um, it, you know, and, and anytime we go to a foreign country, it's just, it's incredibly difficult. And you're right. Like especially sure. celiac, my my son's uh, girlfriend. Um, like yes is not an acceptable answer, <laughs> you know. And and and, and because of the negotiation process, you get into a. They say yeah, you know they they give you a yes, and that's that's not actually. And that, so you're pushing back on a yes, which feels really weird. Yeah, yeah no. Um, and so it's an interesting. I I, I had a chili because I'm peanut check. Same same. It's it's hard, and, and it's, it's very hard. It's a negotiation. Well, I, I basically, yeah. I mean, I I basically, you know, am over the whole, um, not so much the etiquette of it, but I I've learned my phrases of saying, listen, I need you to know that I'm extremely peanut allergic, as in it's a life or death issue. So if I ask you something about it, it's because I'm really stressing to you. This is a life or death issue for me. Right. And then they kind of take it seriously. And I'm not sure if you want to go to that extreme, Rob, but it does work if you tell them there are serious health repercussions. Um, but I find it's the same. That I think people need to become more culturally aware, and maybe that's just a personal perspective, that the background of the person that you're talking to does make a difference. Hmm. Uh, I will tell you, I had a situation yesterday with a gentleman who I had no way of, well, I looked him up. I did every bit of research that I could on the individual. And it turns out he was a Palestinian. And halfway through the call, he called me a kike. Oh, oh wow. And I said to him, what did I do to provoke you to say that? And he goes, you didn't have to. I was going to tell you that from the get-go because you're Jewish. And I thought, there are a few expletive deletives in many languages I could use right now. And all I said to him was, I hope that works for you. You know, yeah. if you want to be a hateful human being, okay, I hope that works for you. Yeah, but... Premeditation, premeditation you're describing, it, but he's you, at that point, you're like, is it possible? You know, it's not even possible for you to get on the same page. This is never, I, it's not, I don't want to compare the severity of this, but it's also, it, it's, I mean, we see that with like the don't want to work with startups mentality. There's this massive bias against you, and some folks can overcome it and some can't. Uh, so where I'm getting to is trying to uncover the, the level of that bias. And if if it's there, then I know I need to move on quickly. Does that I wanted to to bring up his comment about black swans, um, another buried thing. I mean, that that's that in a lot of ways is a black you're describing a black swan here. It's something that had nothing to do with the topic that you were talking about or the relationship. But it became it becomes a impossible to address um, issue. That you needed to know, you you needed to know 
you you discovered something about him. Hopefully, he's not an important. You know, there's there's you can just close close the book and and that's it. But actually, he's a VP of IT for a major oh. corporation in the U.S. that I have done business with in the past. He's new in the job, maybe a year and a half, and I I had two ways to go. I finally very late last night, and this was part of my why I was wandering around the house and stressing, yeah. I sent a letter to his boss, a quick email saying, listen, I am, you know, I'm, I'm trying to disassociate, but you need to know that this is what the individual said to me, not because I, I'm looking for some repercussion or, you know, like other than an apology, um, but if this is his attitude, you need to be careful with people he that that are interacting with, yeah. not only collaborative inside but outside the organization as well, because this is not good for your brand. And I got <laughs> a, a response at probably seven o'clock this morning saying, "Thank you for letting me know. I'm terribly sorry this happened. Blah 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 blah. What can we do?" And I said, "It's up to you." You know, you want to have another conversation where it's a different individual involved, no problem. But frankly, I would prefer never to speak to this individual again. And if that means losing you as a customer, so be it, yeah. you know. But um, but um, Tyler, to your point, there's a quick and dirty way to figure out whether you're going to end up in that situation. Ask them if they have a risk mitigation policy as part of their procurement process about, you know, we don't give more than X amount of revenue or 25% or whatever, whatever to companies your size. If you ask the risk mitigation question as part of the process early enough on, you'll find out very quickly whether you're barking up the wrong tree. Well, you know, my approach is probably too direct, but it fits my personality, uh, which is, you know, there's sometime during the first meeting or two, um, I, I may just ask them straight up, you know, so are you comfortable working with small companies like ours? It, yeah, I, my, and ours, I know that experience has been, been, you don't find that out until, until, but, procure, until you're way down the road for procurement. That, well, yeah. well, no, not necessarily. So, so if 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 the buyer in IT or in marketing or whatever, if if they're not comfortable working with a small company, you're not you're we're not going to make progress. So you've you've actually got you you've got to get through procurement absolutely, but that's, you also got to get through. Yeah, uh, but that's a that's a that's a that's a you know when did you stop beating your wife kind of question. No, um, it, but no, it's, that's true. It's 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 the kind of question that you know if you say it that way, uh, very very few people are going to be willing to be as upfront and kind of say. Yeah, but you you can ask the question in different ways. You can get to it in different yeah, ways. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I'm not saying that's how I always ask it. Okay, um, but that's how I ask it if I think they're not comfortable. And I yeah. just want to validate that and move on to the next opportunity. I've done about 10 startups and I'm not bragging. So I, this is something I've lived very dearly. Um, the real question, or the, the, I mean, I think the point is absolutely spot on, but the question is understanding if the person you're dealing with 
understands the procurement process for a small non-vetted company. That's right. Absolutely. The waste Absolutely. a lot of time. Because um, a lot of those people are your champions, right? They're mm-hmm. the ones yeah. found you and reached out to you. And so you want to mature that and you want you don't want to give them any negatives because you're trying to blossom their ability. And, you know, are they an influencer? Do they understand? But the point you have to get to reasonably fast, in my experience, is will you get through procurement? Is there a channel? And there usually isn't a big company. Is there a channel to get through procurement? For small companies, and sometimes they're, um, you know, they're in. Sometimes there are, you know, yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. But I, th- I think that's a really good point, um, Tyler. Um, I think it was, yeah, uh, and yeah, it's, and, it's super situational, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean that the the, the yeah. case that's top of mind that just happened with me it was because we had somebody on the in the buyer team that had a bunch of objections around small companies that were unvoiced because I had locked up other folks in the team that when they went away, I had not handled those objections. Uh, but then I go talk to the, to the other contact and it's like, Oh yeah, no, we, we had that conversation about, you know, uh, you know, creating escrow for your code base and, you know, mitigating all the small company risk and, he didn't really want to listen to it. I was like, okay, well, right. You know, that's, yeah. but, you know, the, I guess what I was, so the bluntness piece, like if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you have this individual that has been introduced to you through a trusted third party, whether it's in the customer company or external, or you, you've got to be able to figure out what their propensity is. You know, I, I, I don't mm-hmm. I'm sure most this of you guys heard this story when we were in the Coca-Cola bridge community here in Atlanta back in 2017. And uh, this, it was a competitive process where you pitched and they picked us out of, well, they picked 22 startups out of about 250 that applied and then the idea was for them to twelve Fortune five hundreds ponied up money for this program, uh, so that the bridge community could broker conversations between startups and buyers within the enterprises. But <laughs> to, to me, this is this is no, hold, hold on a second. Let me go ahead. Go I, ahead. I got to get to my point. So we were at at the garage in in Midtown next to to, to ATDC. And uh, there was a, a group of about 25 different Coca-Cola IT executives in there. And and so we came in to talk to them. And at one point, one of the people said, you know, this is just, this is kind of a waste of time because I'm not going to put my job at risk to buy from a startup. Mm-hmm. Set that in front of us and the whole world. And I'm looking at all the Coca-Cola IT guys nodding their head going, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So that, that, yeah, I mean, you have to just constantly qualify that and 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 get them right. to voice objections around small companies because if you get the relationship with them, you can start to turn their attitude around. But oh my God, being a small company is so pot is so hard to triangulate on all of the different folks in the buying group across your whole sales pipeline. It's it's nuts. Well, the buy, oh, yeah. the, the group of buyers, just statistically, um, 
has gone from in large companies from 17 to 25 in the last year and a half, and in mid tiers from eight to 15. And in small business, it doesn't really matter. They're all going to voice their opinion. <laughs> you know, I, no. I think, yeah, agreed. Joanne, no, it's great. And by the way, Joanne, I, like if I knew who that company was, or that person said that to you, I would never do business with them, carte blank. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a saint, but I have zero, zero, zero tolerance for any form of racism or discrimination. Um, you know, especially as you get older, it's maybe it's a little easier as I'm an old person, but but um but mm -hmm. the the point about like the the strategies for I, I was just with a startup that went wrong last year, right? But in like one of the disagreements I had with the founder, which was I was literally working with a friend at JP Morgan Chase who was involved with converting all of Oracle um rack to Oracle RDS. Right. And so I had a conversation with him about automated governance and it was the thing I was working on. And, you know, and, and I, I know him well, but he'd say, John, it's going to be hard. I'm like, Sean, don't worry about that. You know, he, he'd always go back to like how hard it's going to be to sell in JP Morgan Chase. I'm like, I know that. Like, let's focus on solving a problem. Like, if we can right. solve this problem, then we'll grow that. Other teams will see it. And uh, and my knucklehead CEO came in and just started talking about ELAs and scared the whole. My, my friend cut us off because he literally went to like, how are we going to sell it? When the point is, those people know how hard it is to sell. I mean, hopefully it's useful because I've learned this over the years. They know how hard it is to sell. You have to pull them away. Maybe this is part of the book I haven't read yet, but you have to pull them out of every time they start leaning towards that. You pull them back to like, well, no, no. And this is classic. Oh, yeah. Story. No, that's, that is, there is a part of the book about. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. About, yeah. No, about, so you, you have to, it's, it's putting them into a outcome. It's really an outcome focused approach. And so part of what you need to do, and this is part of where the black swans come into, um, yeah. which I, I felt like was, I understand the, the naming, but you need to understand the, the mode, their motivator that might be tangential or or below the surface for, for getting things closed, right? Like for what you do with the, what you were doing with the governance piece, right? The fear of an audit um, or the lack of information, right? That that sort of fear, this is back to Sandler, understanding the fear-based, which I didn't like any better, but it's, it's the accurate way to say it. Um, you know, if you want to pull them back into what those things are, the thing that was fascinating about about the book is that he he did a really nice job saying part of what you're building empathy to do is actually listen well enough to figure out what those what the what the real issues are for them yeah. um and so well, that's to, that to john the thing to, yeah. to john's point you know the person with whom you're most likely to be working after the after the first meeting is arguably going to be the person who has to be your champion. So basically what you're you're putting yourself into is the situation of how do I make that person successful? How do I reduce the barriers for that person in getting to it? And, you know, is there another, you know, am I aware of all of the other agenda 
that are you know involved with the with the decision to go with my company yeah, and Tyler I, I you know well I know John and Tyler both you know it you know small companies early stage it's a it oh. always is an up it is always an uphill battle so hard. but I, I, so I got to get one more comment in real quick speaking yeah. of ones one of my defining twitter moments is when talib called me an idiot on twitter like <laughs> it, it, it should be a poster on my wall you know i was I, gonna say oh, do you have that frame john everybody an idiot he called simon wardley an idiot too so i'm like ah man now it isn't good as it, i thought it was so. <laughs> i as a as a sort of a speed round I'm, I'm interested just from a you know yes no there were there were two techniques that he added into into the book that I that I've I've used that I think are useful. One is odd numbers or overly specific numbers, um, and that they're that they have the appearance of being less mobile than round numbers. And then the idea of artificial deadlines, so creating urgency um, yeah. to move a move a negotiation. I found both to be very helpful, but. Yeah, we're we're always looking for the precipitating event, and whether whether that individual cares about it. Yeah. I think mm, the odd numbers thing I've used. I I liked his the way he used the framing of the story and the storytelling aspect, which mm. is you know a me thing anyway. Um, really helpful, but. I actually dropped odd numbers into a story. Oh, interesting. Okay. And and that worked really, really well. It really did because people don't expect it. Nobody expects your, you know, your cost to be ending in a seven. That's true. And somebody has actually said to me, well, why is it a seven? And I said, because it's halfway between five and 10. So no, but it's to his point about you know you go you you have to make someone feel like they're gaining something in the negotiation. His sixty five seventy five eighty five percent thing that oh you've just created a little win for them. It's it's that kind of a trick, um, and I don't mean a trick in in the literal sense. No, it's but it's. It, I think it's easy, and this is, goes back to one of my other favorite books, which is Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational, is, right, you know, you, 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 we fall into certain modes of thinking. And I, the book, in a, in a lot of ways, was entirely about getting out of, you know, traditional modes of thinking. So I thought the title was actually really, really appropriate as a reminder um, from that, that perspective. Um, and sort of what did you nudge. think of his two butts? Thing. I'm not, I don't, I'm not. Well, in, in the two butts rule is, is actually a concept. I mean, the book is by John Walpert. It just right. came, it literally just came out, but never split the difference actually has the concept of the two butt rules and how do you use a two butt rule or butts, you know, your mm. first butt is to gently object. Uh, uh, you know, con uh, be contrary to what someone is saying, and your second one is to move them more towards your point of view in a very nuanced sort of way. How you pivot it? I'm gonna have to think about that more and review it. I definitely, we definitely have the two butt rule in the in the reading list for the fall. 
Good. So uh, maybe next, I can the, get him to come and talk. Oh, that would be wonderful. I would absolutely love that. Um, and next week we're going back to the compliance death curve to, yeah. to spend some time thinking about the math leading into that. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, on the 15th, we'll look at the ARVR applicate, you know, revisit that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully Apple computers, will, the new Apple face computer will come out and we'll, um, have some have some feedback. I'm I'm not on the list to buy one, but neither am I. Uh, uh, actually, um, uh, John Gruber, who does Daring Fireball and and the uh, is involved with uh, Stratechery and some others, has been working with uh, Vision Pro for the last week, and he's he's an Apple pundit, and he had a very good. Um, podcast this last week with um, I think it may have been on Stratechery or maybe it's on their 15 minute dithering uh, talking about using um, using the Vision Pro and probably worth worth listening to Wow I am so happy that we added these book club discussions into the Cloud 2030 roundtable. Um, I really enjoy the the material that we we bring in, and I really, really like people's hot takes on this. Um, it adds such a dimension to the book to have the real salt of experience um, into them, and then also think about what the what what was added by the author. Hope you will join us. Uh, our our calendar doc, it's a Google doc, has our schedule, what the next books are. Um, please come in, read the books, be part of the conversation. We really enjoy hearing the extra voices. Even if you haven't read the book, um, you will have something useful to add to the discussion. I will see you there. You can find out more, our calendar, past episodes, and things like that at the2030.cloud. We'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. All part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.